This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Ken Dodds. Ken is Vice President and Industry Expert at Live Oak Bank. Um, and today we're going to have a, a wide range discussion about small businesses and federal procurement uh, from policy to performance to where things are headed. And Ken, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. Glad to be here. So first, Ken, I just, um, can you talk a little about your role at uh, Live Oak Bank and and what, what Live Oak Bank actually focuses on in terms of it supporting the, you know, contractors in the federal market? Yeah. Thank you, Roger. Um, I, I came over to Live Oak about three years ago after 20 plus years at SBA, where I was a government contracting attorney, worked with you, of course, when you were at GSA back back in the day. And that's right. <laughs> they, they, they they created a vertical to cater to small business government contractors. They lend nationwide. They're publicly traded, FDI insured. And they're one of the top leading SBA 7A lenders in the country. And so when I heard them that they were starting a group just to focus on government contractors with lines of credit and also a lot of mergers and acquisitions, uh, they, they enticed me to come over. And it's been, it's been a great three years that we've had together. Now, what, I have to follow that up because I know when I left government, went to the uh, you know, private sector, uh, went to a law firm. You, you see things f- f- from a sort of different perspective. Is there is there one thing or a couple things that sort of struck you when you went from working for the government for those two decades, um, you know, and, and and turned around and were supporting contractors trying to enter the market or or participate in the market? Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, certainly uh, being in government twenty some years doing GovCon. Um, I knew that there were acquisitions going on. We had rules around recertification. We might even talk about those today, but I really didn't really know how to even value a business. How do you determine how much a business is worth? So I certainly learned a lot about that in these three years, looking at backlogs and difference between full and open and set aside work and, and all the things that go into how businesses are valued. Um, I also, I always felt like I was responsive when I was in the government, people would say that I was responsive. It has been hard sometimes uh, out here on the outside trying to get some responses uh, from the government. It does take a while. Um, but, I mean, I guess COVID probably played a little part in that as well. But certainly I'd like to find people in government that are responsive and, and can help you, you know, kind of explain where things are going or why things are the way they are. Right. So, Ken, I have to say you were very responsive when you were at the SBA and I was at GSA or even even since I left. Um, I'm always there to answer a question. And you know, we worked on a few projects together back, you know, in terms of looking at regulations and that sort of stuff. So um, it was always a pleasure. Um, but, you know, it's interesting you say that about, um, you know, that, you know, just how to value a company because and, it, and it's sort of so I feel similarly that. You know, the idea of like how regulations and rules shape the market impacts 
company's ability to compete or participate, which goes to their value in in part, right? So it's a uh, so one of the things that I appreciated is learning more about you know what what I actually did and well I was in government and it really did have an impact on you know what people uh, were doing out there uh, in the private sector. Yeah, and I think we're going to talk about one of those things later. I mean, the mm-hmm. the, the whole size issue. You know, they've been waiting. There was a proposal and. People are waiting to get those uh, revenue things increased, and that could really impact them. As we just went through, you know, we just changed fiscal years for a lot of companies. January one, now you have to look back five years, including you know, twenty twenty one in your revenue, and so that's an important important factor. Yeah, yeah, it's about it shapes the market and shapes the competitive landscape. So, and we'll get and we will definitely talk about that. Um, but let's get started here too with just some of the issues. And I think the level set. I know the FY twenty twenty Golan report um, covering you know the performance of the government in supporting small businesses. Uh, you know, kind of sets a framework for. You know, OMB issued a memo in December of just last year uh, looking to increase uh, small disadvantaged business scoling um, over time and also made some additional interesting uh, changes with regard to the you know, category management and best in class and what gets priority and not. Um, so can you talk, first of all, about, uh, you know, the the Golan report and how the government did in FY 2020 and and then what the memo means moving forward. Yeah. Um, 2020 is the best data that we have right now. Uh, 2021 obviously ended, but usually there are anomalies, you know, and I did I did have the pleasure of doing the Golding Report for many years when I was at SBA. So usually there are anomalies that have to be fixed. Then there's a whole grading process where SBA gets input from Ozdaboos, and then they also have to get the subcontracting data. And so that's why it takes eight months sometimes for the SBA to issue their scorecard. So we don't have a 2021 yet, even though it's, it's, it's completed, usually comes out in the spring or summer. But for 2020, you know, since, since I was kind of doing the goaling starting in like 2011, it's been several years in a row where the government has been able to meet that 23% small business goal. Uh, 2020, it was 25%, actually, $142 billion that went to small businesses. And then, of course, we have the other category goals. There's the 5% for women, 5% for SDB, 3% for service-abled veterans, and 3% for HUBZone. Historically, SDB has been met the last few years. Uh, HUBZone has never been met. Um Women-owned, I think, was met once, and I think they did 4.7 in 2020, so they did not meet the 5% goal. But what was interesting for our purposes is, uh, and related to that OMB memo is that um, the government, the goal is 5% statutorily. That's kind of a minimum. The government did about 10% or $58 billion with SDBs in 2020, and about 3.5% or $19 billion of that was to 8A concerns. And I have a quick question before we so the hub zone has never met its goal. Is that because it is kind of there's it's limited by geography in a certain sense, the way the hub zones are set up, or is that it's is that it's fair? Yeah, it's been challenging because uh initially there's a it's a could be a long story, but I'll I'll try to be brief. Initially the the program was set up pretty stringently. It was really hard to meet 
uh, a lot of the requirements. They wanted full-time employment and things like that. Um, over the years, there's been changes to try to adjust that to, to change, to maybe not have full-time, allow people who can work part-time if they live in a hub zone to, to qualify. That's been one of the changes that, that people have done to try to make it easier to kind of comply with. And then the other complicating factor is it's based on census data and, and that can change every year. So you you hire someone in a hub zone, but then they're not in a hub zone, or you set up your office in a hub zone, and then it's not in a hub zone. And so that leads to constant kind of churn where you're in el you were eligible, but now you're not eligible, which makes companies not necessarily want to be in the program. And then that makes agencies not really want to do set-asides if there's not a good market there. Right. So it's kind of like a circular thing there. There have been some changes to try to mitigate that, but it's always been kind of a challenge. Yeah, that's yeah, it's a yeah, that it's an interesting dynamic. So, with regard to the memo, um, the with and, and the focus, you know, the, the increase in small disadvantaged business goals, it's so it's more than double. Like it's you mentioned, it's five. It was five percent for FY twenty twenty, and the goal is now eleven percent for twenty twenty two. Um, and that's to increase to 15% by 2025. Um, I guess this reflects the Biden administration priorities and, and, and then just generally, what are your, you know, observations with regard to the, you know, to the memo, some of the key features of it? Yeah, I think what's interesting, um, and I kind of, I, I think that there's been some proposals around increasing some of the other goals as well, like small business uh, to 25%. There's been some statutory proposals, but I don't think anything, you know, that's about to pass. But if you look at the statutory language, it says, you know, not less than 5%. So I think SBA or, or the, and the administration has always had the authority to kind of raise those. And that's kind of what they did here through this OMB memo. They picked SDB and they want to focus on small, you know, disadvantaged businesses and, and try to increase contracting with them. I think what's interesting is that 8A is really the only way to target SDBs. Um, all 8As are SDBs. Um, there used to be an SDB program. In fact, it was there in the 90s when I started at SBA. There was a certification program. There were some benefits like a price evaluation adjustment. But over the over time, those things have been ruled basically unconstitutional, and then the SBA certification program went away. So there isn't any kind of certification. There aren't any SDB set asides. There aren't really SDB protests. So the, if you really want to go, for example, from eleven percent to fifteen percent SDB, you're really going to have to increase that eight A contracting through sole source or competitive. That's really the only way to meet that. And what I think is going to be interesting to see over the next few years is how do they, how do they, how do agencies go about meeting that? Because you have your uh, in, individual-owned uh, 8A company, but then you also have the entity-owned, the ANCs, the NHOs, and the tribally-owned companies that have that um, you know very high or unlimited sole source authority that agencies find attractive. So it'll be interesting. And I'm sure the administration is going to be watching as 8A contracting increases. Is it going to be with, uh, you know, individually owned type 8A companies or is it going to be these um, entity owned that are going to get those awards to try to meet that goal? 
Yeah. Um, and on that point, I have a, you know, when we come back, we're at the break, Ken, but when we come back, I just do it. One more question about the memo and sort of the interplay between category management, you know, and, you know, the promoting small business opportunities um, because the memo does kind of start to address that issue or does address that issue. Um, and then we can turn to some of the new regulations that, that are important to small businesses and to large businesses who support small businesses. My guest today is Ken Dodds. He's vice president, Live Oak Bank. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Ken Dodds. Ken is vice president and industry expert for Live Oak Bank. And we're talking about all things small business uh, this segment. And, you know, uh, Ken, last segment, we were talking about the Goaling report from FY 2020 and the OMB memo focusing on small businesses that came out in December of of last year. And, um, the last sort of question I had about that is, can you just talk about this sort of balancing or rebalancing uh, between category management, best in class versus socioeconomic goals? Yeah, this, uh, in addition to trying to address and increase SDB goals, it also addressed a lot of things around category management. You know, category management really was started by uh, the gentleman I worked for for a brief period uh Joe Jordan at, at SBA, of course, it, it goes back to, you could call it, uh, you know, you know, sourcing and all those other things. It's not a new concept, but he kind of kicked that off during the Obama administration when he went over to OFPP. And what it seems to have happened, if you look at the data, is that it's kind of limited the amount of participants, especially small businesses in the market. Because, for example, if you did consulting, and you weren't on Oasis and an agency decided that they were going to use Oasis for all of their consulting contracts, you know, you were kind of out of luck. You'd have to participate kind of as a subcontractor. And so there's been some calls to have on ramps and and to increase the amount of the ease for people to get on these, uh, these category management um, vehicles. But what the OMB memo did to kind of address category management as well is first of all, they gave uh, agencies this almost the highest credit, the second highest credit you can get, you can get for doing a non, you know, best in class or vehicle mm-hmm. procurement. So basically, if you do an 8A hub zone, STVO women owned set aside as an agency, that's just the same as using some of these other vehicles that are considered tier two. So there's a complicated goaling that uh, agencies get in addition to the small business goaling. They also get these goals to use category management, tier one and tier two and tier three uh, each year of their spend, and they're kind of rated by OMB. So by giving agencies the ability to use these, you know, local set-asides basically to get the same credit, that's supposed to increase the contracting with these types of firms like 8A, HubZone, and and so forth. Yeah, and I, there's always, it became that issue of like, the depth, I mean, the breadth of the market, how many small businesses were actually getting opportunity versus, uh, you know, a, a, a subset, I guess, of winners. And there's this debate, like, which is better. And uh, I can remember back in the Obama administration, there are conversations about, you know, uh, strategic sourcing, you know, vehicles and, you know, there'd be a limited number of small businesses on there and whether that made sense or not, like, what you know, the balance between competition versus 
you know, I guess access in a certain sense. And I think the me- this memo sort of continues that kind of like focus. Um, so, you know, just turn to some of the, I guess, a regulatory update on small business issues. And I think the, the first one I wanted to ask you about is, um, you know, the, the, there's in September of last year, the uh, FAR Clause 52-219-4 limitations on subcontracting um, was in a certain sense updated. Um, can you, and that's important when you're talking about how you team in the market and and it's all throughout some of these regulations and bid protest cases. Can you talk a little bit about the that this new clause? Yes, and this does this goes back to my my time at SBA. You know, when you whenever you have a set aside contract, generally there's some kind of requirement that you're going to have, whether it's services, construction, or supplies, that a small business participates somehow. And we'll we'll talk about the waiver of the non-manufacturer rule later. But so in general, we want you to do, let's say on a service contract, 50% of the small business. Back uh, many years ago, there were some programs that allowed the prime contractor to rely on a subcontractor to meet that performance requirement, but then other programs did not allow it based on the way the laws were written. And so Congress eventually thought that that was a good idea to allow a prime to use a sub that was similar to them. So, for example, it was an 8A set aside. Maybe the 8A prime didn't have to do the 50%. They could do 25% as long as they used another 8A to do the other 25%. So that was kind of the concept that was passed in the NDAA of 2013. SBA does their own rulemaking before the FAR changes. Usually SBA goes through a rulemaking, and that took three years, basically. It was finally you know, finalized in 2016 because you have to do a proposed rule, get comments, finalize it. And SBA did that in May of 2016. So it's been several years waiting for the FAR to change. I think one of the issues, the reason it took so long to finally get the FAR clause is that um, after SBA issued their final rule in 2016, there were some industries that came to us and said, hey, we need an exception. You know, uh, when we're dealing with hazardous waste, we have to use these large businesses. There's no small business that does that work. Or when we're overseas and we're doing work for USAID, the people we hire can't be our employees. They're foreign nationals. And so we had all these industries, unfortunately, come to us uh, to SBA after we finalized their rules. So then SBA had to do a correction or not a correction, but a new rulemaking to kind of address those. And I think that's why it took the FAR so long to be updated. But it was finally updated uh, in effective September of 2021. It allows you as a, as a prime, if you're doing a set aside, to also rely on a subcontractor to help to meet that limitation. It also changes the calculation. It used to be kind of complicated and hard to explain. It was uh, based on cost incurred for personnel. And now it's just, you know, basically an amount paid. So as a small business, if you get a million dollar contract, you know, you can't subcontract more than 500,000 of that to a large business. The other 500 has to stay with you or with another first tier uh, subcontractor. Yeah, I think the important thing is, that I, I, to me, one of the big things is what you just described. They clarified how you actually determine. Mm-hmm. Um that was always a challenge. It seemed to me when I was in government or even advising companies, just how you figure that out. Um, from your perspective, um, do you see this as promoting greater opportunities for small or just, or, 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 or level setting the rules of the road or both? 
I think it definitely helps promote your ability to compete. Um, you know, using teaming. You know, teaming has become a, a major part of government contracting to get on these large vehicles. You have to have a certain amount of points. A lot of times that's going to require subcontractors or, or joint venture arrangement. Obviously, SBA's mentor protege program has grown and expanded to all small businesses. So teaming has become important. So this is another tool for a small business in their toolbox to help help them, you know, be able to compete as a prime, but not necessarily, you know, do all the work and have teammates help you perform some of the work. Uh, I think that's the, the biggest thing. And then it was popular. You know, we we created it by rule in some of our programs and the other programs usually say, well, we, we like that. We want that, too. And that's kind of why it's good to have the same rules for all the programs when you can. Right. So we got about a minute left in this segment, uh, Ken, and I want to go. Uh, we're going to do a regulatory overview. Let's you know, can you pick out a lot of these rules seem to be about around these final rules around timing when you determine whether you're small or large in the context of procurement. And there's also uh, along the lines of limitations, subcontracting, you know, the rules that impact um, joint ventures and that sort of thing. Do you want to, can you give a, a sense and we can continue the conversation on these rules in this segment, but pick one that you think is important and, and we'll finish up this segment on it. Okay. I'll start with the, the waiver of the non-manufacturer rules. So if, if you're, if you do supplies, this is an important thing for a small business to, be aware of. And there are, uh, you know, generally, if it's a small business set aside, you're supposed to supply the product of a small business. But if there are no small manufacturers, SBA can issue a waiver and allow you to supply the product of any size business as far as they're concerned. You know, um, that that's by saying that there are no small manufacturers. That means any business can be supplied. There is a complicating factor there where the Trade Agreements Act could or should probably be applying where it's not. And that's probably something, you know, we can touch base on in the next segment. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's a, that's an interesting issue in the context of the VA procurements as well. Um, so we'll talk about that when we come back and some other key rules and, and, and some of the bid protests too, that are out there impacting the shape of the, uh, the rules of the road for the small business contracting in the federal government. My guest today is Ken Dodds. He's vice president and industry expert for Live Oak Bank. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Ken Dodds. Ken is vice president and industry expert for Live Oak Bank. And we're doing a regulatory review of some of the current new regulations. And actually, Ken, I think you were talking about something that perhaps hasn't been done yet. And so what do you mean that TAA doesn't apply to uh, set-asides where there's been a waiver of the non-manufacturer rule? Explain that to me again. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, it is a little quirk uh, that it probably wasn't intentionally done. Um, But it was the far part that we're talking about was written probably from the mindset of um, where small manufacturers is, is responding to a supply you know, solicitation. In that case, you have to supply the product of a U.S. small business made in the U.S. So the TAA would not apply in that case because we only want U.S. small businesses to supply the product on a small contract if there are small manufacturers. However, if SBA has issued a waiver um, of the non-manufacturer rule, then it can come from anywhere based on the the way uh, SBA's rules are written. But 
I think in that case, we would want the TAA to apply there. And so the way the FAR is written right now, it just says, no matter what, if it's a small business set aside, the TAA doesn't apply. I think it probably should say that if there's a waiver has been issued, it does apply. So you do have to supply, you know, a trade agreement act type products because otherwise, you know, the, the small businesses under this waiver are the only ones in government that can kind of not comply with the TAA, whereas everyone else does have to apply or uh, comply with it. Yeah, it's, it, that seems, yeah, that there is like the, you know, in the FAR in part 25, they, or in, in, in part 19, where pro- they probably, you know, t- are tied together. I don't recall right off the top, but they, they left out a sentence or something in that case to say that TA applies in the case of a, where the waiver of, of the non-manufacturer rule is applicable. Um, and just real life, you know, that's, you know, like, for example, the VA has done a lot of set-asides for service-to-table veteran-owned and veteran-owned distributors and dealers uh, of, of manufactured goods. And in those situations, theoretically, the VA could be buying all kinds of stuff made in China. And that makes that does not make sense from a policy perspective from any administration. I don't think that was intentional. Yeah, so it's just, so you you think that's something the Biden administration would be focused on? That's a quick fix, um, you know, for uh, the regulations, and that would promote you know American-made manufacturers in the context of the TAA as well. So uh, anyway, we'll see if uh, that's something that you know they they start to focus on over there at the FAR Council. Um, so uh, let's turn to. Some other some of the key regulations I know you mentioned in the first segment uh, the size standards and um, you know can you talk about the the what's going on with the context of the rulemaking for uh, updating size standards? Yeah, the um, SBA every five years uh, essentially by statute they're supposed to take a look at size standards and make an adjustment. Um, usually. They either increase them or leave them the same. Sometimes they decrease them, but only if everyone in the industry would would uh, qualify. Even back when I was still at SBA in 2018-19, they had worked on the uh, revenue-based size standards. They did a proposed rule at the end of 2020, actually, and I was anticipating, you know, they'd get comments and that they would try to get a final rule done by October of 2021, October, you know, the beginning of the fiscal year. That's usually how we would do size standards. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. And here we are almost in March, uh, and the size standards have not been updated. And this is very critical for firms that just became, you know, this is a new fiscal year, 2022. And so you have to use the last five fiscal years, including 2021. So for example, you know, consulting is, it's right now 16 and a half, when SBA finalizes the size standard, it'll probably be 21.5. You know, that's a that's a big difference and can really impact someone's ability this year to bid on small stuff and also to recertify to the government if they have to. And, you know, those rules still have not been, been issued yet. But is it, is your sense of it, it seems, I always felt like one of the reasons it was, it I always felt it was hard to adjust the size standards just because of the competitive implications of what, like what you just described for companies. And I, I just, my, my, my sense always, it was hard for the government to, you know, bite the bullet and actually because of, because they were, because you can't win because you're, you're, you're changing the rules of the road and who's eligible and who's not. And it's, and there's always going to be some folks who are happy and some folks who are 
upset about it. Is that a fair observation? Yeah, the, the reality is, is the the size standards are done by these PhD economists that use census data, and they have this long white paper that only they understand, and that very few <laughs> very few economists understand, and so. It's usually pretty straightforward. You know, the comments can't really make much difference. You can't just say, well, this is going to hurt me or help me. That's not that helpful in terms of commenting on a role. If you have some kind of economic argument, you could maybe, you know, uh, make, persuade them somehow. But usually that's not the kind of comments they get. Now, whenever they try to lower size standards, that's when people get really upset. Um, raising them. Most people are for that, at least the people that are vocal, because those are the ones that are probably right there. Or left out, yeah. It. Yeah. And those are the ones that probably got, you know, they just changed it from a three-year average to a five-year average because of those kind of companies that were advocating for that. So raising them is usually popular. Decreasing them is never popular. Yeah. All right. Well, let's turn to some of the other rules. I know there's a, a you know, there's, I guess there's a, a rule that came out um, in November on JVs and number of contract awards. Yeah, uh, and that that SBA rule has been uh, one of the things they tried to address was the issue of facility clearances for joint ventures. Um, SBA has a lot of rules that kind of foster these joint ventures, and under their rules, they're actually not populated with employees. The actual work is done by the members of the joint ventures, almost as subcontractors. And there's been an issue for a long time around DOD requiring the joint venture itself to have a clearance, even though the two parties to the joint venture themselves have a clearance. And so it didn't really make sense. SBA did, tried to do a rule that said if you know the parties to the joint venture have the clearance, you shouldn't require it for the joint venture entity itself. In addition to that rule, there were some changes in one of the NDAAs, I think of 2020, that told DOD to... Uh, honor the clearances if both parties have it. And there's been several protests now where, at GAO at least, where the agency DOD has lost on that issue. They can no longer require a joint venture to have a clearance if the two parties to, the, or all the parties to the joint venture have a clearance. That seems pretty common sense to me. I mean, if you've already got it, you already got it. I, and so... Right. And it's been a you know, clearances are obviously a hard thing for small businesses because you can't get a cleared contract if you don't, don't have a clearance, but you can't get a clearance unless you have a contract. So it's, it's, been right. a, it's a challenge in and of itself. But once you have it, if you're doing it as a joint venture, they should recognize that the parties have the clearance and can do the work. Um, and I know there's a, there was a, a rule effect also, I think they're all effective as part of the same package, but um, a rule on size status um, and when it's determined or not determined. Um, and that was interesting that, you know, I think that goes, a lot of it goes to the multiple award contract concept or, um, and, and, the, and what or what doesn't apply. Can you talk a little bit about that one? Yeah. And this, this issue of course goes back to when you and I were at, uh, I was at SBA and you were at GSA, this issue of when do you determine size and status for these, you know, for a schedule or IDIQs. And um, we had SBA had some rules around recertification if there's a merger acquisition. And then we allow people to ask for it at the order level if they want, but they don't have to. And I think there's been litigation where a service-abled veteran was bought by a non-service-abled veteran company, and then they were still competing for veteran-owned set-asides, and that made SBA was not happy about that. So basically under this new rule, which does not apply to the schedule because GSA got themselves exempted. 
if your status wasn't relevant for the contract, then you have to be eligible if an order set aside at that time, basically. So if it's a full and open contract and an agency decides to set aside an order for small business, your size will be determined at the time of that order, not what your size when you got on the contract, which could have been you know, three, four, five years ago. And the same concepts is going to apply to set aside contract. Let's say it's a small business set aside contract, but now you want to do a women owned small business order set aside. Your, your status will be determined at the time of the order because your status wasn't relevant to get on the contract. Right. Right. So, and when, so, and what's the rule for the schedules? Since they did, they got their setting them GSA got yeah, itself an exception. Basically, it's going to be unless you specifically request it as an agency, it's just going to be based on your status every you know five years or you when know, you certify it to contract level when you got on. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think this new rule to me, uh, if I was an agency, I would never set it up where every time I set aside an order. I, I'm subject to protests. I mean, there could be a, there's an initial decision. It could go to a OHAB decision. Then someone could take it to the court of federal claims. There's all kinds of disputes that can go on forever when it comes to size and status. So, if I were an agency, I would just set up you know pools where you know small can compete, hub zones can compete, eight A women owned, and so forth, and 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 figure that all out at the contract level, and then not have to deal with that for for five years as you as you place your orders. Their status will be determined based on the contract and not based on each order. So what you're saying is like the Oasis model where there's Oasis other other than small or, and then there was the Oasis small business set aside. That makes sense. And from a, from a, from this perspective and promoting small opportunities for small business and streamlining in a certain sense. So you don't, so you have to go through the process each and time, every time at the order level, you take care of it at the contract level. If you create that separate set aside. Yeah, and I think they've they've created an a, a Oasis 8A, and I think they have an incentive now to create one for each of the categories, and then allow agencies to decide where I'm going to compete the order. Will it be with all the smalls? Will it just be 8A? Will it just be hub zone? And I think that's how most agencies are going to go forward. I don't think they want to subject themselves to constant size and status protests. Right. That's which would happen if you moved it all and merged it all into one contract vehicle. Right. Yeah. Because right. then your, your status wasn't relevant. Everybody got on. So now every time you set aside an order, you're subjecting yourself to protests and people will protest, especially if the firms have grown to be large now. Right. So, okay, Ken, we're at the break. When we come back, we'll continue. We'll finish up on the regulations and we have a little bit of time to talk about bid protests and I'll maybe just get your reflections on where we are with small businesses over your career in the federal market. My guest today is Ken Dodds. He's vice president and industry expert for Live Oak Bank. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Ken Dodds. Ken is vice president and industry expert at Live Oak Bank. And uh, we're this segment, we're finishing up real quick here on some of the highlights from a regulatory perspective over the, uh, the last uh, year or two with regard to uh, SBA rules. And then we're going to take a look at some of the bid protests. And I know there's a Final rule back you wanted to mention um, with regard to 
you know, when, when a small business is acquired in the context of uh, a procurement, but and it's prior to award. So Ken, take it away. Yeah, this was a change that I'm not really too happy about. Um, back when I was at SBA, we did the recertification rules and basically, you know, once you, you're acquired and you're no longer small, you just tell the government and they don't get credit. We never messed with your eligibility for award because that was determined when you made your offer. This new rule basically says if you're acquired within 180 days of an offer, you're not eligible for award. And that really is going to impact our market, the mergers and acquisition market for small businesses because most small businesses have pending proposals. You have to bid in order to stay alive. And, and so anytime there's an acquisition, it can take a long time. And so this is going to impact when those decisions are made. If, if you're, uh, if it's within 180 days of an offer, um, it could impact your, your eligibility to actually get the award. And we've already seen some cases trying to discuss that at GAO. Yeah, I guess I would think that would be kind of put a damper on, you know, the attractiveness of companies in certain situations, I guess, perhaps. Um, it's definitely looking, a factor. Yeah, de- definitely. So, and, and so we'll finish. That's, that's all on the regulations, I think, for, for, for this, for this visit, uh, Ken. But uh, I know bid protest is something you, you follow as well in the context of small business. And um, there's been a lot of focus and press around the CISP4 procurement. And I know there were a couple of bid protests there that I think very interesting. I wanted to get your thoughts on those. Yeah, I think from the very beginning when they were just even talking about CISP4, I think there was an indication on the part of the government that they didn't really want to deal with joint ventures and teaming. They just wanted to evaluate the individual bidders or offerers singularly or by themselves. Um, and I, I understand that that sentiment. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of rules around joint ventures and teaming and allowing that. And so I think, um, you know, we had two cases that kind of explored that. The first one where, uh, which was denied, uh, was a change that they made, I guess, 39 days before offers were due, which basically said, we're not going to allow you to rely on large subcontractors for experience. Um, And so in that case, Geo said their rationale was okay and that they didn't violate anything. And so therefore that protest with respect to COSB4 was uh, denied. But the other part of their solicitation uh, basically limited the amount of experience that a um, JV partner that had a mentor could provide from the mentor. You know, under SBA's rules, JV can be a small business and a large business. And the, one of the reasons you do that is to be able to use the past performance and experience of your mentor. In this case, they limited the large business mentor's ability to provide experience, but they didn't require the protege or small business to, to uh, provide any. And GAO sustained the protest on this that basis. NIH fixed the, they did, they fixed the solicitation, correct? They did. They, they did a, a correction. And I think, um, allowed people that were part of a mentor protege JV to change their, you know, offer based on that. And I think, uh, GAO kind of signaled that what they, in other cases, they've said, well, if you require at least one, maybe from the protege, then you can require or limit the other ones from the large business, but there has to be some. Uh, recognition that the protege has to provide some of the experience, but there can be some limitations on the, what the large provides as well. So when you, when you look at these 
bid protest. Is that the biggest area for small businesses? This the issue of what well, in the context of evaluation is the teaming aspect of it and did what gets credit and not credit or and even and I and I expand it say also in the JV realm of things just how these things are structured is where you get the most bid protests around small business issues that that is a big part of it because um JVs have only grown in importance SBA has updated their rules on JVs they've allowed um you know they expanded it from where it was originally created for eight A's to all small businesses. Um, mentors can have up to, you know, three different, you know, protégés and protégés can have up to two mentors. So it's really just expanded. And so as we see these solicitations, especially for things like COS before, where it's very highly competitive and you need points and, uh, you, you know, your teaming has become more and more important to help you try to meet all the different things as you go through the, the spreadsheet, trying to get your points up to get on these, these vehicles. So just taking a look across, cause I, I promised you I'd do this. <laughs> it's like, um, or threatened you, I don't know, however you want to look at it, but um, no, no, really the, <laughs> the, um, the teaming, the joint ventures, just the way things have evolved from looking over your time. Is that, is that I think I think you may have alluded to this, but is that the growth in the use of these things is sort of as ne- necessitated by the way procurement has changed in terms of these big vehicles and that sort of thing? Is that is that fair yeah, to say? I, th- that- I, th- I think um, it's become you know so competitive and so important, especially these vehicles that last for ten years or more. You know to if you're not on them then you you really can't play that whole time if if especially if agencies decide as a policy that we're going to use this vehicle for our all our purchasing in a certain certain industry so it has become more and more important um i've now that i'm here on the outside um i've seen some you know some abuses too by mentors and obviously i'm sure you've heard those as well in terms of how they're they're creating the protege or how they're getting along so um, that that is going to become, I think, an issue more and more as we go forward, because a lot of these joint ventures are now getting these best-in-class contracts that are supposed to last ten years. Will they be able to get along <laughs> as partners for those the, those ten years? Yeah, and just last question: it's, It seems to me when you do when we are talking about best-in-class and the contracts for ten years, um, and sort of that 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 balance between having a competition and the selecting the pool versus creating opportunities on an ongoing basis. That's a, that's a tough balance, isn't it? I mean, I mean, I, I think the government and it, and it ebbs and flows, right. At some point now we're, I think in a period where, you know, everybody's focusing on the vehicles and criticizing them because they're, because and pushing them to have on ramps and that sort of thing, where I think, you know, in a previous era, maybe 10 years or so ago, that wasn't necessarily as much a focus. Is that one of the, to you, the biggest uh, push and pulls in small business contracting? Yeah. And I, I think that um, the agencies have responded. I think you're seeing a lot more awards, a lot, lot of companies getting on these vehicles, almost to the point where, you know, almost everybody gets on them. So then you're almost back to square one. I guess you're 
in order to to actually award something, it is easier to use these vehicles instead of doing a full blown contract. But as far as a small business, you know, getting on uh, one of these best in class contracts when there were only thirty small businesses was very lucrative, and, and a lot of those companies grew to be be large. But if you're getting on there and there's eight hundred of them, it's almost you're back to square one. You're still it's going to be highly competitive and business development and all those other issues are going to go into that. Are you, you know, a lot of these companies may get on these vehicles and not actually see anything except the the guaranteed minimum. Right. And and then it starts to look more like the schedules. It certainly does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ken, I'm going to, and we're going to have to make this like a, a regular visit just to update the pulse of small business contracting. My guest today is, Ben Ken Dodds, he is Vice President and an Industry Expert for Live Oak Bank. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.